0: He must increase. He must increase. That is the title of my sermon, the big idea. Those who respond appropriately to King Jesus are committed to seeing his glory increased. So again, if you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are now committed to seeing his glory, not yours. That was before conversion. Before you trusted in Christ, before I trusted in Christ, we were all about our glory. Is true? We were glory seekers and glory stealers, but now, because we've trusted in Jesus and we've been saved from God's wrath, we're all about whose glory? God's glory. And we pray, John 3.30, may He increase and may we decrease. I came across this story years ago. It took place in 19th century London, and it was a Christian conference, and there were three well-known preachers The keynote speakers at this conference and the first preacher gets up and he preaches a brilliant sermon in the audience this is what you would hear oh wow that was so nice that was lovely did you hear that he's so gifted and eloquent it's a great sermon and then the next preacher got up and again preached a great fantastic sermon and it was the same kind of response oh how gifted he is what a brilliant sermon Well done, chap. But then the third preacher to get up was Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon preaches God's word. And this was the response. Isn't God wonderful? Isn't Christ magnificent? Isn't Jesus worthy? Isn't that interesting? In one verse, we have encapsulated the very purpose and goal of the Christian life. Verse 30 of John 3 reads... He must increase, but I must decrease. That was John the Baptist's cry. It was Spurgeon's cry. May it be our cry as well. Amen? He must increase, but I must decrease. I'll probably say that a few times this morning. What do we learn from our passage? I want us to look at three things from the text. Number one, the proper response reiterated. The proper response reiterated. That's verses 22 to 26. The proper response reiterated. Let me read it again. After this, Jesus and his disciples, they went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anan near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and I love this last line, and all are going to him. And we hear that, we should say what, church? Amen. Amen. <laughs> People are going to Jesus, yes. That's why we do church. That's why we gather. That's why we go out. That's why we preach. There's a lot of baptizing going on. Four times the verb baptize appears. Why? Why? What's going on here? Again, four times we have mentioned the practice of baptism. Jesus, disciples. So again, it says Jesus was baptizing, but we get clarification in John 4.2. It was actually his disciples that were baptizing. So, Jesus disciples were baptizing and John was baptizing. And then a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over the issue of purification. Now what's this all about? Purification. It's most likely that the issue being discussed was over the difference between John's baptism and the current practice of Jewish ceremonial washing. Now this was a tradition if you want to know more, you can go to Mark 7. There's a great passage on how these Jews, if they would go into the marketplace, maybe they would have an interaction with something or someone that was unclean. What would they do? They'd wash their hands. Archaeologists have discovered these, I would call them ritualistic baths. They're called mikvotes. That's the Jewish name. And they were basically like hot tubs. <laughs> and they would pour water in these tubs, And they would go down into the water, the Jews in the first century, to cleanse themselves. So several groups within Judaism during the time of Jesus washed daily, daily in cold water for the sake of ritual purity. Now that was not the purpose of John's baptism, right? It's not what's going on here. So what do we learn about John's ministry and John's baptism in the gospel. So I want to look broader than John. I want us to ask the question, we looked at this a few weeks back, but what is going on with John's ministry and John's baptism? Recall John 1, 6 to 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Okay, so It's not about John. John came to bear witness to somebody else. Who? Jesus. And then we get to John one thirty one. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, we're going to jump into Matthew. So you can turn or just listen. Matthew 3, 1 and 2, in verse 12. Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2, and then I'll read verse 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then verse verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will what? He will burn with unquenchable fire. John's baptism, let me summarize quickly, and then we'll look at a few more passages. John the Baptist, right? I often uh, distinguish between John, the beloved disciple, and John the Baptist, I'll say JB. We'll be talking about JB, John the Baptist, primarily here. John's baptism was meant to call attention to the coming king and God's kingdom and to help his hearers, his listeners, prepare for that king and God's kingdom accordingly. And what we see in Matthew, this is interesting, What we see in Matthew is that the coming of God's kingdom concerns judgment. Judgment. Now, we've seen this warning already in John 3.18. John 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Amen. Woo! I mean, that's good news, right? That's justification by faith language. If you believe in Jesus, trust in him, you're not condemned anymore. You're righteous. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And the question remains, how does one prepare for the inbreaking of God's kingdom and the arrival of God's King? As we learn in Mark 1.4, so we've looked at John, Matthew, now we're going to turn to Mark. As we read in Mark 1.4, it says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, And proclaiming a, here it is, here's the key phrase, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John came to bear witness to Jesus the light. John believed that God's promised king had finally arrived in Jesus. And his ministry, John's ministry, was therefore meant to point to Jesus, Jesus and prepare people for Jesus by calling them to do what? Repent of sin. You know, John's baptism was rooted in Old Testament promise and expectation. We see that in Isaiah 40, verse 3, also in Isaiah 52. Isaiah 43, 40, verse 3, this is a well-known text. It's used in association with John's ministry of baptism. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the... Lord, and John comes and he's preparing the way for who? Jesus. And I often use this when sharing the Gospel with Jehovah's Witnesses. I do. I use it a lot. I love it when they come knocking on my door. You know, my older sister's a JW. What we see in Isaiah 43 and how the New Testament uses this passage, it ascribes this role to John. John comes. John is the voice in the wilderness preparing the way for the Lord. And if you're talking to a JW, you can say Jehovah. And then who shows up? Who is the Lord that shows up? It's Jesus. Wow, it's so clear. Can I read Isaiah 52, 10, and 11? I saw a knot over there. Good. The Lord has bared his holy arm. Okay, that's strong language that's meant to cause us to shudder. Okay, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Verse 11, listen to the language. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Now, Isaiah 52 brings the ideas of God's coming in might, coming in power, and the call to repent in preparation the king's coming so we must understand john the Baptist's actions in the context of prophetic tradition the purpose of john's actions and the actions of jesus disciples was to call attention to the lord and the proper response is what repentance and reception get ready for the king That's what John's baptism proclaimed. Get ready for the king and respond to the king in faith. Repent and believe. That has been the emphasis in John 3 so far, namely, responding to the king appropriately. And what does that look like? Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. Amen? Now, what's the effect of these two baptizing ministries? So you got John baptizing, Jesus' disciples baptizing. What's the effect? The cause is there's a lot of baptism happening. What's the effect? Verse 26, I love it. All are going to him. All are going to him. To who? Who are they going to? They're going to Jesus. This is the goal. This is why John came. This is the mission of the church. We preach Jesus, and we pray that all who hear would go to him in faith. How should we respond to Jesus and his saving message? What have we learned over the course of John's gospel thus far? Repent and believe. Trust in Jesus. Have you gone to him? Let me ask that question. I'm being serious. Have you gone to him? Have you gone to Jesus? If not, do that today. Go to the one who lived a perfect life, a life that we are incapable of living because we're what? We're sinners. Go to the one who died in our place at the cross, taking the punishment that our sin deserves. Go to the one who then rose again victoriously, declaring that all his claims are true and that what he did worked. Go to him in faith. And as we learned last week in John 3.18, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Amen? But why? And that brings us to number two. Why? Why? The reason for the response. What is the reason for this response? Why should we respond to the king this way? Why should we turn from sin and trust in him? Somebody say, Why? What's verses 27 to 29? So we've looked at verses 22 to 26, and now we're going to look at verses 27 to 29. Point number two the reason for the response. Verse 27 John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine, John says, is now what? fulfilled or complete. Now, there seems to be some angst on the part of some of John's disciples as to why so many are going to Jesus. Maybe there was jealousy on the part of some of John's disciples, right? They were kind of in the limelight. People are coming to John and his disciples to be baptized, but now they're all going to who? To Jesus. But was John the Baptist jealous not at all. Not at all. What was he? He was excited. In verse 27, he points to the reason for this response, namely why so many are coming to Jesus. John's not surprised by this response. Verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven or from God. So what's happening here? John comes, prepares the way, people come to him to be baptized, he's readying them for the coming king, Jesus comes, and now people are going to Jesus, even some of John's earlier disciples have gone over to Jesus. Why? This was the Lord's plan. It was his doing. That's verse 27. Verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Who is sovereign over what's happening? the Lord. This was the Lord's plan, his doing. The Lord was sovereign in John's ministry, and he was sovereign in Jesus' ministry. And as we saw back in John 1, 6 to 8, and as we'll see in verse 30, John's role, John the Baptist, according to the Lord, was to prepare the way for who? Prepare the way for Jesus. And when Jesus came for John to now get out of the way, for John to now do what? Get out of the way, bro. John was simply saying, things are happening as planned according to the good and sovereign will of God. Now, why should we go to Jesus? Why should we go to Jesus, friends? Why should we repent and believe in him? Because it was God's will for him to come as king to rescue and rule over God's people. It was God's will to send John to prepare the way for the Christ, the King. In Jesus, the King has come. You know, John uses two titles for Jesus that are worthy of our attention and that shed light on the matchless worth of Jesus. Did you catch the two titles in the second half of our passage? Christ and Bridegroom. In verse 28, John declares, I am not the Christ. I'm not the guy. (laughs) It's not me. I'm not the one you've been looking for. Who's the Christ? Who's the king? Again, Christ refers to the one promised of God to rescue and rule over God's people. John says emphatically, unabashedly, I'm not that guy. I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Here, John is acknowledging Jesus to be the Christ, the promised king to rescue and then rule over god's people john attributes jesus success to his identity as messiah as christ and then next and i love this next part next john in using a parable describes jesus as the bridegroom that's verse 29 the one who has the bride is the the bridegroom The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now what? It's now complete. Now, why is this language significant? Who likes weddings? Wow, no women are raising their hands. I am surprised by that. Where am I right now? This is East Texas, right? Oh, I love weddings. Flowers and... I like weddings. I'll tell you a wedding story here shortly. You know, in the Old Testament, and if you're familiar with the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God's coming salvation is spoken of in terms of marriage joy as the union between a bride and her groom. Isn't that sweet? Right? Hopefully, be careful here, men. When you're married to your bride... It was a time of celebration and joy. Amen? And that is how the Bible describes God's union with His people. It's like a wedding, a marriage, a joyful gathering between the bride and the bridegroom. You know, in the New Testament, Jesus is spoken of as the bridegroom and the church as His bride. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. For I feel, Paul says, a divine jealousy for you Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And if you recall, in Ephesians 5, 22-33, Jesus compares the relationship between himself, Christ, and the church to the relationship between a husband and his wife. In our parable, Jesus is the groom and the church his bride. Now, what about John? What's John's role? John's not the groom. He's certainly not the bride. What is he? He's the what? Say it again. He's the best man. He's the best man. He's the friend of the bridegroom. Listen to this quote by Matt Carter. Matt says, John compares Jesus to a bridegroom and himself to the groom's friend, or what we would call the best man. Now, again, what's funny is if you've studied the first century or second temple Judaism, which I'm sure you do all the time, there are some differences, right? I mean, weddings were a week long. That doesn't sound fun to me. A week-long wedding? I want to get married and go be with my wife. I want to enjoy life with her. Like, an all-day wedding, yeah, but a week long? But, you know, what's interesting is that the role of the best man then and the role of the best man today is pretty much the same. Did you know that? Let me keep reading. His role, the best man's role, was to prepare the wedding festivities and to make sure the wedding went smoothly. The best man's job was to make sure the bride was there. As long as she shows up, he's done his job. And then the wedding can do what? I mean, once the, once the bride's there, now the wedding can begin. So once the, once the bride showed up, the best man's job was what? It's done. It's, it's complete. He did what was asked of him. What best man, after fulfilling his responsibility, is going to act angry because the groom showed up and married the bride? John points to his disciples. This is his point. John's point to his disciples is that Jesus is the groom and he's come to marry his bride. John doesn't matter anymore. He doesn't matter anymore. John doesn't want people to ignore the groom and focus on him. That's not his role. His joy comes from watching the bride and the groom come together. You know, I've conducted a lot of weddings. I've done a lot of weddings. I love doing weddings. And I have had the privilege of being a best man in many weddings. Let me share some of my experience with you. Each time I served as the best man, I had to take out at least four ex-boyfriends that showed up. Like, took them out. They're unconscious. I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. Really? Tell us more. No. Each time, here's what I want to focus on, the ceremony. Each time I served as the best man, I found myself in tears of joy as my dear brother in Christ exchanged vows with his bride-to-be. Do you know my favorite part of a wedding? So I often have a unique perspective. I'm usually standing right here. And when the bride walks in, I always look at the groom. And it's my favorite part. Because what happens? If you're like me, it's like I mean, I was a mess. Tears were just shooting out of my face, tears of joy. But I love to watch the groom and just see the awe and the wow and the tears and the joy as he is getting ready to become one with his bride to be. Amen. John is joyful in his role he doesn't do his role begrudgingly oh i gotta be the best man no he he's excited because again this is what he's been preparing for to ready people for jesus to ready god's people for their groom this was the whole point of his ministry namely to get people ready for jesus hey church learn from john learn from john because our role is similar is true our role is similar Christianity is not about self-worship or self-centeredness or self-service. But, rather, Christianity is about selfless surrender of the saved to the service of the Savior. Amen? Christianity is about selfless surrender of the saved to the service of the Savior. We have been saved to proclaim the Savior to the world around us, to testify to the King, to bring others to King Jesus. That is our role. And there is much joy to be found in our role. You know, the whole point of these verses, if you were listening, is to show the incomparable worth of Jesus. He is the one John has been preparing the way for, the long-awaited Christ. And in proclaiming, our worthy king, there is much what? There's much joy. Why? Why? What did, what did the text say about John? What did y'all hear? What did he say? What did we learn about his joy? It's now been made complete. It's been fulfilled in his role. And what was his role? To bring people to Jesus. In proclaiming Jesus' church, there is much joy. Why? Because this is the Lord's joy as well. Let me explain. Listen to Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the writer says, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. Jesus' joy was in doing the will of His Father and rescuing His people through His sacrifice just as jesus finds joy in being with his rescued people so too we church should find joy in proclaiming jesus so that sinners can be brought into fellowship with him amen john the baptist found joy in the union between christ the bridegroom and his bride jesus finds joy in the union of himself and his people We, too, should find joy when people are brought into union with Christ when they hear the gospel, turn from their sin, and trust in him. So I want to encourage you to preach Jesus for your joy. Preach Jesus for your joy, and for the joy of Christ, and for the joy of God's people, and for the joy of the lost. But what's the purpose of it all? Our final point, number three, the goal Of the response. And that's verse 30. Oh, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. The goal of bringing people to Jesus is to bring glory to Jesus. Amen? Let me say that again. The goal of bringing people to Jesus is to bring glory to who? To Jesus. This was John the Baptist's supreme desire, namely to see Jesus increase. That's everything. That is everything, church. This must inform and characterize all that we do. He must increase. This was the goal of John's ministry, namely to call attention to Jesus. And when attention is brought to Jesus, the king is glorified. Does that make sense? That was a joyful laughter right there, right? When attention is brought to Jesus, the king is what? He is glorified. Verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. You know, these are John's last recorded words in John's gospel. And what beautiful words they are. He must increase, I must decrease. Now, the key word, if you're listening carefully, the key word in verse 30 is the repeated word must. Everybody say must. It denotes divine necessity. And it's repeated, it's said twice. Edward Klink notes, this is a beautiful observation. Just as surely as God requires that a person must be born new, that's John 3.7, and that the Son of Man must be lifted up, that's John 3.14. So God requires that Jesus must come first and John the Baptist or any other disciple second. Do you get that? He must come first we must be second. He must increase, and we must become less. Do you share in this heavenly desire? I wonder, is Christ supreme in your life? I don't know if he is. Is he? Is Christ supreme in your life? This is at the heart of Christian discipleship. Mark eight thirty four. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, hey, if you're going to come after me, Jesus says, deny yourself, Take up your cross and follow me. Decrease! I must increase. You know, a pastor recently stated, and I really appreciate this. He said, you know, I stopped asking people if they believe in Jesus when sharing the gospel. For almost everyone I met said yes. But their simple response of yes didn't reveal the state of their heart. For most would agree that Jesus is a real historical person. So instead, the pastor said, I begin to ask, do you treasure Jesus supremely? Or maybe better stated, church, based on John 3.30, you could ask this, in your life, has Jesus become greater and have you become less? That is my assignment to you, church. This week, would you ask somebody? Would you ask somebody this week, hey, in your life, has Jesus become greater and have you become less? Who will take up that assignment? I'm going to do it. Okay, praise God. Here's where I want to bring the the plane down. Here's the application. Listen carefully here, please. What are the implications of John 3.30 in the life of God's church, specifically in the life of a believer? What does John 3.30 look like in our daily lives? How do we apply... This cry, this declaration, this call that Jesus must increase, but we must decrease. I have several things here. I'll repeat them once. The first thing is this. The believer must preach Jesus. The believer must preach Jesus. He must increase, but I must decrease. If you really believe that, that he must increase and that you must decrease, then you got to preach Jesus. Amen? you got to proclaim him. Second, the believer must be humble. Oh my goodness, there's nothing worse than a proud Christian. What an oxymoron. Because he must increase and I must what? Decreased. The third thing is this the believer must get rid of idols. The believer must get rid of idols. Why? Because he must increase, and I must what? Decrease. The fourth thing is this. The church must not elevate anything over the preaching of the Word of God. Now, understand why. Why is that the case? The church must not, cannot, dare not, Elevate anything over the preaching of the Word of God. Why? Because at the very heart of the Word of God is Jesus Christ. Amen? And He must increase, and we must what? We must decrease. Number five, the church must be on the lookout for anything that might distract its members from following Jesus and becoming more like Him. Be on guard, church, against the petty, against those things that could cause division. Why? Because he must increase and we must decrease. Next, the believer must not fear man. Why? Because he must increase and we must decrease. Next, the believer must care most about the reputation of Jesus. Amen? The believer must care most about the reputation of Jesus because He must increase and we must decrease. Two more. The believer must put sin to death. Why? Because He must increase and we must decrease. And then finally, the believer must be committed to regularly communing with the Lord the believer must be committed to regularly communing with the Lord why because he must increase and we must what decrease maybe you've heard of the term ministry drift anybody heard of that ministry drift it's a scary thing i've seen it happen many times this happens when a believer it could be a pastor it could be a church member drifts from their mission and even drifts from the church how does this happen I've always wondered that. I've known men in my own life who have wandered from the fold. They've wandered from the Lord, pastors and church members alike. How does this happen? It's when we increase and he decreases. I promise you that. It's when we increase and he decreases. It's when we stop thinking more about Jesus and start thinking more about ourselves. As one brother notes, and I pray that many of you will hear this, it's when we evaluate everything based on what we like and dislike. How do we avoid this? How do we continue in John 3.30? By staying in the Word, by staying on our knees, and by staying with the church. Amen? By staying in the Word, by staying on our knees in prayer, and by staying with the church. Let me end with this, and then I'll pray. How are you currently calling attention to Jesus? How are you currently living out John 3.30? He must increase, but I must decrease. And again, the whole point of John's ministry was to call attention to who? What did John live for? To call people's attention to who? Say it with me. Jesus. How are you, in your daily life, currently calling attention to Jesus? Moms and dads. Is this happening in the home with your kids? Are you regularly calling your kids' attention to Jesus? Opening the Word with them? Singing God's truth with them? Praying with them? Brothers and sisters, is this happening in the workplace? By the way you live, your attitude, your words, are you calling attention to Jesus? Students, is this happening in the classroom? On the court? On the field? By the way you live your life, the way you speak, the way you act, the news you share, are you calling people's attention to Jesus? Church members, is this happening in the church through your relationships with fellow believers? Our role, everybody say our role, my role, say my role. My role, role, good, okay. My role, our role, like John, is to draw people's attention to Jesus. And we do this by living like Jesus and by faithfully proclaiming Jesus to others. Again, He must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray. Father, these are good words, but they are hard words. Because of sin, we are more inclined to see ourselves increase. Guard our hearts against that. I pray that as a church body that we would internalize and live out and apply John 3.30, that that would be our rally cry as a church body, that we would sing this and live this together, that Jesus, you must increase and we must decrease. And I pray that all that we do as a church body in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our places of work, May it all bring attention to Jesus. Because Jesus, you are worthy. You are the bridegroom and you are the promised king. Come to rescue your people and rule over your people. And for that we say thank you and we praise you and we desire to spend our lives for you because again, you are most worthy. Father, we love you and I pray, we pray together that Spirit, Holy Spirit, please Take this passage and apply it deep into the recesses of our hearts. Change us through your word. Make us more like Christ through your word. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen.